Hope you're doing well. Uh, if you're with us today for the first time, maybe uh, visiting, have some visitors with us, wonderful. Good to have you here. Uh, welcome, good to have you here. And Rhiannon, thank you for your... Where is she? Oh, she's not, she's gone out. I was going to say thank you, Rhiannon, good job. Um, I was going to... Maybe in the, this corner over here at the end, we can all have a moment where we show off our scars. Um, that would be great. I've got one up here I'm happy to show. And stories. That's a good scar she's got. Impressive. There you go. Well, friends, um, we're going to continue on in our series of uh, questions for God. So this morning's, this morning's a difficult one. It's a difficult question. I think there's two reasons why it's a difficult question. One, because I'm not completely sure there's a really good answer. I'm not quite sure today you'll walk away and think, aha, I've got it. All sweet, no problem at all. I don't think you will. I hope you walk away with a few good things. That's the first reason. The second reason I think it's hard is it because many of us have experienced pain. That's why. Pain which then causes us to doubt. Pain which causes us to question and sometimes even causes us to be angry as well. So thinking and talking about suffering uh, sometimes is hard going. So we need to pray and ask God to help us as we think through this difficult topic. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you are uh, indeed in control of all things. Um, you're also in control of our hearts and our minds. So you pray, we pray that you would open them up now and help us to understand things that are, that are a bit tricky. Um, give, us, give me the sensitivity that I need to, to explain things well and maybe even as we talk about uh, stuff after the sermon too that you would um, uh, give us kind and, and loving hearts as we speak to each other. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in October last year, Michelle uh, went to Jordan, just next door to Syria, and she went there to see the work done by some Christians of uh, Syrian, uh, some, some Christians who were working with Syrian refuge, refugees. While she was there, they were delivering blankets and uh, heaters in a neighbourhood when an old man, uh, I'm going to call him Abbas, Abbas approached the truck and spoke with their driver. Now, Abbas is not his real name. Um, in fact, that's not Abbas. Uh, <laughs> I'm putting that up there because this is actually a real story um, with a real person that Michelle met. Um, but for his respect and so on, we're not going to put his real photo up and nor use his real name. But it is a true story. He was poorly dressed. He was uh, barefoot in the icy cold. The sun was going down, the call to prayer was going out, and soon it would be dark and uh, even colder. The driver turned him away because they didn't have enough heaters and blankets to go around. The ones in the truck had already been assigned. That was it for the day. Sometime later, they drove past him again, Michelle in the truck, and they saw him walking along and he was in tears. An old man, uh, tears running down his face. The driver was so moved, they followed him to his home. And they followed him with, to his home with fresh supplies. Um, up three flights of stairs, 
They found him in a cold and dark uh, concrete room and there he was living with his wife. They were about 70, 80 years old. When they saw, when the wife uh, saw Michelle and the, and the driver and some of the helpers with blankets and heaters, uh, she just burst out in tears. Uh, she was crying. A great relief, no doubt. And she began to pour out her heart to them. Uh, Michelle says that it was so quick that the driver had trouble um, translating this, 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 and it was all happening at once. Um, it was a great picture. They, lived, they once lived in a three-storey home, a very nice uh, home in Homs, which is in Syria. Homs, if you know the, the, that story of war-torn Syria right now with IS and all the rest of it going on, um, Homs is almost flattened. I work with a lady in Dubai um, on our staff, on our church staff, who was from that city. Her home is just nothing, devastated. She's one of the lucky ones because she had a little bit of money, she could get out. This uh, old couple, they owned a restaurant, they owned a shop, they had children, they had grandchildren, all lived nearby, a lovely neighbourhood. Now, like Job in the Old Testament, it had all been taken away from them. Their house was destroyed by a bomb, uh, their family were either dead or scattered throughout Europe as refugees, and the old man was sick. They had nothing. And they would most likely die in this cold little concrete room up three flights of stairs. Everything they had ever worked for, everything they had ever built, vanished. And they felt that their life had meant nothing. Pretty sad story, isn't it? True story. One of many. Why doesn't God end this pain? Why doesn't he? God, how can you allow such suffering, we might ask? What, what comfort can God bring to people such as these? In fact, what comfort can God bring to us when we suffer? What hope can God bring to us as we suffer, to Abbas and his wife? Is there a future? People say, if God is so powerful and so loving, why doesn't he do something about it? Well, many would argue that suffering, plain and simple, proves that God does not exist. So here's how the argument goes. So here's a, equation number one. This will help us to, to think about our question this morning, you see. Equation number one, suffering disproves the existence of God. That's what people say. Assumption, an all-powerful God would be able to end suffering. An all-loving God would desire to end suffering. The fact is, suffering exists, you can't hide from it. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. But here's the difficulty. As we think about this question, as we introduce this topic, we don't know that God desires to end suffering. He may choose to, to, let it, to make it continue for loving reasons. So, how about this... Suffering does not disprove the existence of God. First assumption, an all-powerful God exists. An all-loving God exists. Suffering exists. God must have loving reasons for permitting suffering. So perhaps the real questions we want to ask this morning then is why would God allow it? Why would God allow suffering? What has he done or what is he doing about it? 
There are key questions. If you want to follow along, have the outline in front of you too. We will look in our Bibles very, very soon. We'll look at Genesis 3 and we'll also look at Revelation 21. But we'll spend some time thinking about more broadly about things uh, first up. And if you want to scribble some notes down, I encourage you to do that. Now, before we look at the Bible's response to these questions, it's worth taking a moment, I think, to summarise the alternatives. At least to, to bring them out in the open. Maybe you want to do some more reading afterwards. I can point you in the direction of some good books as well. <clears throat> so if there's such a spiritual reality that controls the universe and controls our lives that, that uh, Christians say is sovereign over everything, what alternatives from the Bible are there with regard to the question of suffering? So if you were a Hindu, well then karma and balance... Uh, reincarnation, they shape the answer to these questions. So suffering in this life is the direct result, for example, of living a bad and selfish life previously. But a fair question to ask is, is there comfort and compassion with that response, with the response of reincarnation, the response of karma, it's coming back to bite you type thing. What about the teachings of the Buddha? Well then, as we, we touched on last week and we'll touch on only briefly now, uh, pain is an illusion. Only by enlightenment and, and striving for enlightenment can we then escape that pain. The problem is, is that pain is a reality. Pain is a reality. There's no escaping it. You can't escape it. I'd want to ask the Buddhists, and I have, <laughs> um, can you really live this way? Can you really do it? What about my Muslim friends, uh, such as the couple Michelle met in Jordan, Abbott and his wife? In great faithfulness, they simply resign themselves to the finger of the Almighty, the Quran says. It's Allah's will, inshallah. Allah is the unmoved mover. But are we simply resigned to fate? Is God personal? Does God really want to know us? And can he feel our pain and sympathise, or dare I say, empathise with our pain? Well, the Muslim says, no, that simply lowers God to our standard. That lowers God to the level of us down here. No, God doesn't sympathise or empathise with our pain, they would say. Now, what if your belief is no God at all? Atheism. Well, again, we can, many books have been written. There's some great books by a guy called John Lennox. If you want to scribble that name down, look up him. He's fantastic. Um, for, for an atheist, suffering is just the natural, unhappy byproduct of the universe, the randomness of the universe. Richard Dawkins uh, famously argued that. Lots to do in response here. But what, but what of hope? What of compassion? What of comfort? Does such... Does not, I should say, does not such a belief discourage these things? Is it, is it just the case of survival of the fittest? That's how I'd want to respond or ask that question. So, what about the biblical response? Obviously, we'll spend more time on that this morning. What does the Bible have to say? Well, the first thing we know is the justice of God. In the Bible, God speaks of humanity's sin or defiance against God. 
that, that we rule the universe, that I'm in charge, God, you're not the king, I'm the king, I'm going to put the crown on my head, I'm going to be the one in charge. I'm going to reject your rule. That, that's what uh, sin is, really. But when we go against God's rule, let's call it God's good order of things, us humans, as a result, what we do is we inflict suffering on other people, other humans. And it's not hard to find examples of that, that suffering. A civil war, which often leads to famine. The pain of divorce, violence, a tyrannical ruler wasting valuable resources needed to feed the starving. A classic example of man-made sin causing suffering. We could go on and on. Now, such sinfulness matters to God. God, you see, will not be taken lightly. The Bible's very clear on that. God has set a day when he will judge the world. Acts 17 says, when Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians as well. God has set a day when, Jesus, when he will judge the world, when he will bring about justice. God actually cares, the Bible says, what happens to us in our lives. He's not dis distanced, he's not detached, he's not up there. In fact, the God of the Bible we read about is involved with our lives so much so that he, wants to, he will bring about that justice. He's not the unmoved mover. Let's pause for a minute, take a little tangent. We're not saying that suffering is in fact judgment. Okay? Uh, stay with me. It may be... But the Bible doesn't really say. When suffering is judgment, the Bible is very clear. So we, we shouldn't really speculate. So in the 2006 Boxing Day tsunami, uh, a, a number of, a couple of church leaders, I shouldn't say a number, there's only a few of them, came out and said, this is the tsunami that wiped out hundreds of thousands of people, particularly around Indonesia and Sri Lanka and so on. A, a couple of Christian pastors said, well, this is God's judgment on um, these Muslim people for rejecting God. But of course, we don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible's not clear. Um, John chapter 9, uh, you can see they're written up there, in response to the disciples' question, whose sin made the blind man blind? You might remember that story if you know it. Um, was it the parents or the man himself? The, the disciples asked Jesus. Well, here's Jesus' response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, it wasn't his sin that caused his blindness, Jesus was saying. In fact, his sin, uh, his blindness happened so that God could be glorified when Jesus healed him. Job's a good example. We won't go into the story of Job, we, we don't have time this morning. But Job was a good man. He was a righteous man. He did all the right things when it came to knowing God. But he suffered greatly. He lost everything. So, suffering in and of itself is not judgment of sin unless God tells us it is in His Word. So, a good example of that actually happening is, is Romans chapter 1, where God gives them over. God gives them over to their sinfulness and the consequences of their sinfulness. Uh, a bit of homework, go and read Romans chapter 1. Okay, so, coming back to what God has to say about judgment. God's judgment tells us that it matters to God. It matters to God when you are mistreated. 
The Bible says God's judgment tells us that when you are cheated or when you are rejected or when you are not loved, it matters to God. When powerful people abuse their, abuse their status for their own gain at the expense of others, it matters to God. God cares. When injustice robs people of their, in, their dignity, when children are abused, when violence destroys lives, God is interested and he says he will one day bring justice to those involved. Now, I'll tell you what, I think that brings great comfort to the believer in Jesus. I think that brings great comfort. But there's a delay in God's judgment. Jesus has not yet returned. God continues to allow human freedom and as a result, people continue to sin and suffering goes on. People continue to hurt each other. However, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, we won't, uh, again, read it out here. I think I'll go back there. There it is. That's the one. Um, God, is, God is merciful. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay. It's pretty intense, isn't it? You, you're coping okay? Are we following along? All right, good. Keep, keep with, stay with me. There's not a lot of jokes this morning. I'm sorry about that. Um, now, I, I think most of us can understand this so far that our sinfulness sometimes causes others to suffer and we can understand that if God is really God, then God has the right to judge such sinfulness and rebellion against his good order. And this justice, well actually is in God's sovereignty and God's control of everything, this justice is quite comforting really that people won't get away with it. <laughs> the, 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 the bombers in, you know, in Belgium a, a few weeks back won't get away with it. They won't. And that, that's comforting. But what about suffering that's not man-made, uh, so to speak? Is there an answer? To get an understanding of this sort of suffering, we need to go right back to the beginning. We need to go to the origins of, of suffering, uh, where it all began, Genesis chapter 3. So open that now, it would be a good idea, I'm going to do the same. So open up Genesis 3, if you've got a Bible there, if not, you'll need to listen very carefully. Um, Genesis 3 is pretty easy to find, there it is, right down the front of the Bible. Now the early chapters of Genesis, uh, they are a highly compacted picture of reality, that's what they are really. Genesis tells us there is one God who's the creator of all things and the writer paints an image of God speaking the universe into existence, systematically creating order and beauty out of nothing, Genesis 1 and 2. People are God's special creation with a unique ability to carry God's image and to relate to him. When God completed his work, the end of chapter 1, verse 31, we see that God looked at all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. It's a great line at the end of chapter 1 there. However, when we come across to Genesis chapter 3, which Dennis read to us a moment ago, we read of that goodness being spoiled. Spoiled by humanity's rejection and rebellion against God. That's the incident with the... the uh, the, the fruit they were not meant to eat and the disobedience of, of God. So instead of trusting God's good order, they rejected his rule and they went on their way. 
Now, if we compare Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with Genesis 3, what's commonly referred to as the fall, then it's pretty helpful, actually. It gives us a good before and after picture of what sin did to the world. Now, so let's do that. Let's, let's spend a few moments finding some examples of, in, from Genesis 1 and 2 and then from Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2 describes a perfect relation, perfect relationships between people and God. They were not afraid of him. Uh, it's a wonderful, beautiful picture. But look what happened following their disobedience. Look at chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 8. Following their disobedience of God, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the, in the, garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. That relationship with God all of a sudden is, ups, is upset. They're afraid of God. They don't have a relationship with him. That, that sin has brought a barrier between the two of them. Genesis 1 and 2 again, the relationship between humans was perfect. We look back there. Genesis 2 verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Which is another way of saying they had nothing to fear with each other. There was nothing between the two of them. That they, were compl- they completely accepted each other and they loved each other. Now, let's jump over to Genesis 3, verse 7. Look at Genesis 3, verse 7. Then, this is the eyes of Adam and Eve, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked, and so what did they do? They they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Look at verse 12. Classic male sinful behaviour. The man said, The woman you put me here with, she gave it to me. It's her fault. (laughs) She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it, he says to God. It's her fault, not mine, he passes the buck. Further to this, the relationship between the creation and people was one of harmony and peace in Genesis 1 and 2. But again, let's, let's, let's compare Genesis 1 and 2 with Genesis 3, after the fall, after the sin. So let's go to verse 15 of Genesis 3. God says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase pains in childbearing with pain you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you we'll just pause just for a minute keep your finger in that spot friends just be very be very careful here we ought to be clear is that notice that as a result of sin in the world the husband rules over the wife you see that that's a result of sin in the world uh, that the husband isn't to rule over his wife he's to serve his wife as jesus tells us uh, as the Bible continues on. Okay, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles and, by the, uh, and you will eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food and you will return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and for dust you'll return. You notice there, the curse. This world is no longer a perfect place anymore. It is cursed by sin. It's a funny sort of word. Don't get caught up in the movies and Hollywood version of cursed. Here is what cursed means. It means it's affected by sin. Infected would be a pretty good word too. Thorns and thistles. The world is no longer perfect. Pain. Hard work. 
You notice that work was part of God's creation in the beginning? Work's good. But as a result of sin, work is now hard. Let's let's look at one more comparison. We read it just there in 3 verse 19. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, life was a gift that that would not end. But in verse 19, things had changed um, from uh, dust you are and to dust you'll return, uh, death. So the Bible teaches that the agony of suffering, the imperfect world we now live in, which includes man-made suffering, is the result of our rebellion against God, mankind's rebellion. And evil, all evil and suffering stem from this defiance of God and his ways. The reality is, the Bible says, we're all part of this problem. We're all in on it. Each of us suffers at the hands of a broken world, whether it's relationships, whether it's job loss, whether it's sickness, whether it's natural disasters. Because of the fall, the certainty of death hangs over all of us, uh, Genesis 3.19 tells us. But we also have a sinful nature that has a tendency to turn away from God. So in that sense, we too have contributed to the problem. Okay, I feel like we need to take a deep deep breath. Um, (laughs) So where does that sort of leave us? Let's go back to the questions we asked right at the beginning, if you, if you caught them. What hope and comfort is there then? What hope and comfort does the Bible offer you and I? Well, I want to say plenty. <laughs> I want to say heaps. See, firstly, uh, God wants us to fix our eyes actually on the past. The past which affects our present and future. God wants us to look to the cross. God wants us to look to the cross where God suffered for us, forgiving our sin, making us right with him. John Dixon writes a little book on this topic. Now, this quote's actually not from this little book, but it's a good little book. Uh, It says, if I were God, I'd end all the pain. Uh, Great little book to to have a read on this topic. In another place, he wrote this. Um, John Dixon's a a pretty well-known Christian author, Uh, a number of books he's written. He's also a pastor in Sydney. The the story of Jesus is the story of God refusing to write off the world as a lost cause, but being determined to work within the world to save it. In the life of Jesus, God chooses the way of becoming a human, experiencing all of life with its joys and sorrows, and then submitting to a brutal and unjust death. It is this aspect of the cross that gives the Christian message such force in the face of suffering and living in an unjust world. I'll let you absorb that just for a moment. It's a great quote. Friends, the cross, you see, the cross is not an explanation of evil and suffering, but it is the story of the event where God deals with it. The Bible tells us that God is, the, is a God. The cross tells us that God is a God of love, And God is a God of compassion and God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And this is most clearly seen on the cross. In willingly allowing the forces of evil to come down on him with all their might, Jesus has taken on the darkness and defeated the one who has power over death. 
Let me say that again. In willingly allowing the forces of evil to come down on Jesus with all their might, Jesus has taken on the darkness and what has he done? He's defeated it. He's defeated it. The, the defeated the one who's had power over, over sin and death. So here's John Dixon again. It is this fact that God entered our world of flesh and blood and pain and tears that tells us that human suffering mattered to God and that he understands, that he stands with, stands with us in our pain. So look to the cross. Where do we find comfort and hope? Keep looking to the cross. That's where we find it. But God doesn't stop there. God doesn't say, well, that's it. All right, that's good. That's pretty good. But no, no, God actually promises a future. God promises a future where pain and suffering is no more for those who follow Jesus, for those who believe in him. So God promises to renew all things or a new creation, heaven, where the old order of things had passed away. This is one of my favourite Bible verses. I'm going to read it out all again. It's worth reading a number of times over and over again, I think, anyway. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the, this is the Apostle John. He's sitting on the island of Patmos and God has given him a vision, a vision about what heaven looks like. God has given, given him a vision about his future. And you know what's interesting too? Is that John writes this He's written Revelation down in the context of suffering. Christians were being killed. Christians were being torn away from their homes. Christians were being um, uh, <laughs> burnt at the stake. So here's what, here's what God's word says to Christians like that, who are suffering like that. He gives them a sure and certain hope, uh, a, a future a, and comfort. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Sea is uncertainty. Sea is awful. Sea is pain. Okay? Revelation is full of imagery and pictures. I saw of the holy city, heaven, the new Jerusalem, God's city where God dwells, where the, where the temple is, where God is, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, a church, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. What does God do when dwelling with God means that everything is good because God is the source of everything that's good. When God is not with us, that's bad. <laughs> it's as simple as that. God's dwelling place is now with the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that just beautiful? Isn't that just wonderful? If you're, if you're not a Christian person, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. Put your trust in Jesus so you'll get that. You'll be there. It is, it is just wonderful. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 64 paints a similar picture. The prophet Isaiah looks forward to the, the, the real and certain hope of a new creation. And yes, this hope, this comfort is, is certain and sure. Why do we know that? 
Um, I, the word hope in the Bible, every time you see it, just change it, <laughs> if you like, to confident expectation. That's what it means. It doesn't mean cross your fingers, I hope it's okay. It means um, confident expectation. See, for those who follow Jesus, the confident expectation is of this, that this is where God is taking us. And it can never crack, spoil or fade, 1 Peter 1 says. It's, it's the guarantee, you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that this is real and this is a certain hope, that one day that we will be with him and that will be perfect. Friends, um, if, you're, uh, if you're hurting today, well, know that Jesus understands. Know that he feels your pain. And know that he has died for you so that one day that pain will end. If you are suffering, look to the cross. If you are in pain today, look to the cross. Know the comfort and hope. Know the forgiveness that comes with it. And trust in Jesus. Friends, um, let me, we're going to pray uh, to, uh, to close and then we're going to sing um, a great song that reminds us of um, that Jesus is coming uh, and that we can say, come Lord Jesus, come. And we can look forward to that as Christian people because that day when Jesus comes, all things will be made new, pain and suffering will be gone. Let me pray. Father, we pray that today we would put our trust in you. Lord, we pray today that we would look to the cross where, Jesus, you died for us. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven and right with you, Lord God. Lord, we, look, we long for the day when Jesus returns, when all things will be made new and the old order of things will have passed away. But Lord, we know that you are more patient than us. <laughs> and so Lord, we trust you. We trust you with your timing. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would, that as many people as you desire would come to know you. Even today, Lord, we pray that if, if some of us here today uh, come to you and put their trust in you, we pray that that would be the case and that we would, um, we would follow you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that one day you are returning. We thank you for the hope and comfort that brings us. We thank you for the hope and comfort the cross brings us. We thank you, Lord, that you entered into our world, our world of flesh and blood, and died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, friends, we're going to stand and sing together uh, this great song. It's actually also our offertory song, so if you're a regular here, you know what to do. The bags will come around. That supports our work here, uh, our ministry here. Let's stand.